Chapters thirteen and fourteen of the Interrupted Kiss by Richard Marsh. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter thirteen, the Vicar's sister. When Miss Graham entered the house, Mrs. Harmar came out into the hall to meet her. Elsie, where have you been? I've been for a walk in the woods. In the woods, my dear, what is the matter? Nothing's the matter. Why do you ask? What's the matter? If you see your face in a glass, you'll know. You look as Hamlet must have done when he'd been interviewing his father's ghost. Please get rid of that frightful expression. There's Miss Mingus in the morning room. She came soon after you went out. She must want to see you very particularly, because she has been waiting for you ever since. You know her way. She's told me quite frankly she didn't come to see me. Do get some of that black look off your face and try to find a smile and tidy your hair, and come to her as fast as ever you can, and I'll go and tell her you are coming. Mrs. Harmar hastened away. Elsie, after hesitating a moment, turned into the library. A Venetian mirror hung on the wall between the windows. When she looked into it, she understood why her cousin had asked what was the matter. She hardly knew her own face. As she raised her hands to arrange her hair, she moved the envelope which was in her blouse. So completely was her mind occupied by her interview with Mr. Lionel Fitzherbert that she had forgotten it was there. She glanced about her with anxious eyes. What should she do with it? She did not know what Miss Mingus wanted, but she had a feeling that she could not go in and see her while the envelope was there. They were on the best of terms. Suppose Miss Mingus were to put her arms about her and feel it and ask her what it was. She would betray herself. With her nerves so strung that only by fits and starts could she control them, she knew she should. Besides, she had an almost morbid longing to be rid of it, to remove it at least for a time from personal contact. It carried with it such uncomfortable associations. She closed the library door, cautiously, as if she were doing something of which she was ashamed. Unfastening her blouse, she withdrew the envelope. In such a state were her nerves that at the mere touch of it her hands trembled. What could she do with the thing? Where, for the present, might she hide it? Near her, on a low tripod, was a hampered copper vase. In it was a fine calceolaria in full bloom. Between the pot which contained the plant and the vase was sufficient space for an envelope. But would it be deep enough? An idea occurred to her. She drew out the pot, put the envelope into the vase, and on top of it the flower. She had not done it very well. When the plant was back in its place, one corner of the envelope was sticking up. It was not likely to be noticed by anyone who was not actually on the lookout for it, yet it was visible. Elsie felt she had better put it out of sight. She was just about to shift the pot when the telephone bell rang, with the startling suddenness with which telephone bells are apt to ring. She hesitated. The bell rang again and again. Hurrying to the table, she caught up the receiver. Yes, who is it? No reply. Hello. The door was opened to admit Mrs. Harmar. Wasn't that the telephone? It rang, but I don't know who rang it. There doesn't seem to be anybody there. Give it to me. I'll attend to it. You go and talk to Miss Mingus. We've been boring each other to extinction. For goodness sake, do go and see what she wants. Elsie yielded the receiver to her cousin. Leaving the library, she crossed the hall to the morning room. Miss Mingus was standing by the window. She turned as she came in, bursting into animated speech. "'You poor thing! What a wreck you look! What have they been doing to you?' 
Precisely as she had foreseen, Miss Menyus put her arms about her and held her close. If the envelope had been in its original place, she would certainly have felt it. There was something in the near neighborhood of the other's strong arms which the girl found pleasant. Laura Menyus had been almost as good a friend to her as her brother Peter. If she had not found her quite so sympathetic as the vicar, the difference was one rather of degree than of kind. There was an odd resemblance between the brother and the sister. Each had the same nondescript taste in dress. Laura's was apt to be so masculine that, from a little distance, when she was seated, it was quite easy to mistake her for a man. Each was cobbly built. Both their plain faces were redeemed not only by an expression of shrewd, good-humoured common sense, but also by a radiant something which suggested that theirs was the divine gift of, spiritually, never growing old. Laura was, by several years, the younger of the two, but one felt that, just as the vicar looked as if he were still her age, she would seem no older when she was his. Elsie was taller than she was, so that when they were close together she had to look up into her face. She did look up at it. Then, as if impelled by something which she saw on it, she drew it down to hers and kissed her on the eyes and brow and lip. There was something in the tenderness with which she did it which so stirred the girl that her whole body began to tremble. Miss Mingus, drawing her to a couch, seated herself beside her, and immediately the girl began to cry as if she were a child, and Miss Mingus proceeded to console her as if she were a child. "'Isn't it a queer world, and aren't there some funny people in it? And don't things all get mixed up and tangled anyhow crossways, so that wherever you turn there's nothing but thorns and thistles and general horridness? You can go for days and days and days, and get nothing but scratches and a broken heart.' But, thank goodness, those days do pass, and then it's extraordinary how soon your scratches heal and your heart mends, and the world seems a more delightful place even than it did before. Somehow happiness seems heightened by remembered pain, so long as it isn't remembered too keenly, and it's my belief that it never is. There's just memory enough to give to happiness that tonic quality which keeps it from cloying. If you've damped your handkerchief, my dear, use mine. Miss Mingus held out a serviceable-looking article which was in striking contrast to the scrap of lace and muslin with which Miss Graham was dabbing her eyes. Although, with a movement of her head, she declined the offer, even through her tears, Miss Graham smiled. Returning her property to a patch pocket on her skirt, Miss Mingus changed the subject. "'Elsie, I believe I've been waiting for you for two solid hours by the clock. I dare say your cousin would have liked to have put me into a pail of water with a lid on top but I must admit that she's borne with exemplary eternal patience the failure of her repeated efforts to find out what I wanted you for. You know me, that when I've made up my mind to do a thing I do it, and that when I mean to see a person I stop till I do. It's lucky that you have come, or I don't know how long I should have stopped. Have you seen my brother? It was, perhaps, because the question was so unexpected and so sudden, that Elsie's cheeks burst into a flame. Miss Mingus, surveying them, read her answer. "'I see you have. So he's done it, has he? Though he never breathed a syllable to me, I knew he would do it if he got a chance. Poor Peter!' "'Why do you say poor Peter?' The question was asked with what seemed like a spice of resentment. "'Because Peter loves you as only men of his sort do love a woman. There's a lot of two-penny trash talked about men's love, and women's too, for the matter of that. Peter's an exception.' There's nothing you could ask him to do he wouldn't do, no matter how silly it was, or which he wouldn't do without your asking if he thought he was doing it for your sake. I don't think he's necessarily to be pitied on that account, 
I like him very much. Do you love him? Miss Graham looked down. She picked evidences of her woodland ramble off her skirt. Do you like him enough to be his wife? When Elsie answered, she was still engaged in fingering her dress. Would you care for me to be his wife, with so much, with everything against me? There's nothing against you. Don't talk nonsense. You of all people. I know you and you know me. Do you believe that there could be anything against me which would render me unfit to make a decent man a good wife? Of course not, but you are different. I am to this extent, that I've had the luck and you haven't. So it's all the more to your credit that I know you to be incapable of doing anything which would disqualify you, in any real sense, to be a wife of whom the finest and greatest gentleman in the land would have every reason to be proud. The girl's cheeks flamed more than ever. Her glance was still cast down. Laura, you do say things. I only say things which I know to be true, as you're perfectly well aware. It's only affectation to pretend that you're not. As for your asking if I should care for you to be Peter's wife, when I tell you that I've come here for the express purpose of begging you to be his wife, and have waited two solid hours for the chance of doing it, you'll see how absurd your question is. But why should you wish me to be his wife? For various reasons. I'll begin with one, a very practical one. By becoming his wife, you'll be doing me a good turn. I don't see how I shall be doing that, anyhow. Elsie, have you got any eyes? I've always thought I had. I'm beginning to doubt it. As for Peter, I know he's stone-blind. That sounds flattering. Are you suggesting that he's asked me to be his wife because he's blind to my manifold imperfections? He's not blind where you're concerned, not a bit of it. He sees you and everything about you with preternatural clearness. He's only blind where other people are concerned, and so far as that goes, I'm beginning to suspect that you are too. Laura, what do you mean? Miss Mingus turned suddenly round on the couch, so that she looked Miss Graham fairly and squarely in the face. Elsie, do you mean to tell me that you've noticed nothing between me and Sholto Pattison? Sholto Pattison? Do you mean your brother's curate? Your question answers me. And yet I took you to be a girl who could see through a brick wall. But, Laura, you can't mean, do you mean... Of course, that's just what I do mean. Peter has seen no more than you have. But then he's a man and you're a girl, with such eyes for a thing of that sort. I am surprised at you. Why, you hadn't been a week at Timberham before Peter began to have hankerings for you and I saw it. And Sholto hadn't been a week at Woodcut before he began to hanker after me. And you've seen nothing until this second. Nor Peter either. But I don't count Peter. My dear Laura, I confess I have been purblind. But I am to congratulate you, really. From the way you say it, one would think that the whole idea was still an incredible one to you. I don't know why it should be. I can only tell you this. Ten days ago, Sholto asked me if I would be his wife, and I said yes. He offered to let me have four and twenty hours for consideration. But, as I'd been wondering why he hadn't asked me before, I told him that no consideration was required, as my mind was quite as much made up as his own. So I said yes on the spot. No dilly-dallying for me. My dear Laura, I, I do hope you'll be happy. But you doubt it. I understand. I know you don't like Sholto. It isn't that I dislike him, but he's, he's so awfully good. Exactly. I tell him that he's an understudy for a saint. 
That's why we're so well matched. He supplies the sanctity and I supply the sense. Though, mind you, when you know him, Sholto's not a fool. The same with you and Peter. He supplies the material and you the immaterial. Could there be a better combination? I don't quite know what you mean. Perhaps not, but I do. You tell Peter what I said and he'll enlighten you. Now I'm coming to how you will do me a good turn by marrying Peter. I don't want to marry my brother's curate, and Sholto doesn't want to marry his vicar's sister. I'm afraid I'm very stupid, but again I don't understand. Mr. Pattison is Mr. Minius's curate, and you are his sister. At present, that's the bother. Peter's heart is not in the church any more than yours is. You're not tumbling over yourself with anxiety to be a vicar's wife. I certainly am not sure that I have a vocation for, for that kind of a thing. I'm not sure either. Now I have. It has always been my dream to be at least a vicar's wife. But I can't go to Peter and say, Look here, Peter, I'll give you a good round sum for the living, more than it's worth, because I want you to get out of it, and induct Sholto instead, as I'm going to be his wife. Perhaps he wouldn't like it. He might. He might misunderstand you. Just so, he might. Now you only have to hint to him that you'd rather not be a vicar's wife, and I shouldn't be surprised if he were to present me with the whole thing, lock, stock, and barrel, as a wedding present, and be glad of the chance of getting rid of it. I should keep the living in my own gift and present Sholto. He'd make an ideal vicar, which Peter will never do. I've lots of money. I shouldn't touch the church outside. In its way, it's a gem. But within, I'd make it a dream of beauty. I've more taste and more knowledge than you might think to look at me, and so has Sholto. No expense and no pain should be spared to make it, as regards service and fabric, the most perfect thing of its kind. And let me tell you that the real service of the real English church is the most perfect expression of beauty, majesty, and glory that is to be found on earth. Is it? I see. But you don't care. Each to his taste. Anyhow, now you also see that by marrying Peter you'll do me a good turn and make me happy by giving me my life's ambition. And you'll take Peter away to where he'll be only too delighted to go and you'll make him happy too. And where do I come in? Elsie, I'll tell you. There are different kinds of love which a woman can feel for a man. There is the physical kind, which women sometimes try to persuade themselves is romantic, transcendental, but isn't. I doubt if that kind lasts. Then there is the kind which Peter stands for, which endures and grows greater. You like him already, and you find him sympathetic. You'll find him more sympathetic when you know him better, and you'll grow to like him more. You'll always be able to depend on him. He'll never give you an hour's anxiety. His whole delight will be in you and in your children. To him you'll represent the whole world. In course of time you'll be amused to find how he has come to represent the whole world to you. And as you come to know the world better and learn how the average woman fares, you will understand what a comfortable possession a husband of that particular pattern is. My serious advice is, Give Peter's offer, on all accounts, your most careful and most favorable consideration, for Peter's sake, for my sake, and also, Elsie, for your own. I believe that as Peter's wife you'll be a happy woman. What did you say to him this afternoon? Not much. He didn't ask me to say much. He told me to think things over. That's just like Peter. I suppose he saw that if he pressed you for an immediate answer you'd say no. I don't know what he saw. Miss Menius was silent. 
Elsie was silent, too. After a perceptible pause, Miss Menius rose. "'Well, my dear, that's all I have to say. You give the matter that four-and-twenty hours' consideration which Sholto offered me, and afterwards please, for all our sakes, and certainly, my dear, not least for your own, say yes. "'Good-bye, sister, that I hope is to be. Don't trouble to come to the door, and don't ring. I can find my way out.' Chapter 14 A Question of an Envelope Miss Graham remained for some minutes in the morning-room after her visitor had gone, vainly trying to get her thoughts into something like orderly array. She had so many things to think of, so many more than anyone supposed, that they seemed to jostle each other, refusing to allow themselves to be arranged in any order which would permit of their quiet, contemplative study. First there was the vicar. Now there was his sister— as Miss Graham endeavoured to marshal in her mind what Miss Menyus had been saying, suddenly she thought of the envelope which she had left in the copper vase. Possibly now the field was clear she might be able to reclaim it, and retreating to her bedroom examine its contents in undisturbed seclusion. She went quickly to the library. There was no one there. She crossed to the vase. The envelope had gone. The discovery so took her aback that for some instants she could not realise that it was so. She stood staring at the place at which she had left the corner just sticking up enough to be visible. Beyond a doubt, there was nothing visible now. Could it have slipped down? She lifted the flower-pot which contained the calceolaria. Now that the pot was out of it, the vase was empty. There certainly was no envelope. She replaced the plant with something of what the feeling of a person might be who had seen some solid article disappear without rhyme or reason from under his very eyes. She almost felt as if the envelope had vanished from under her eyes. Who could have taken it? How had anyone learned that it was there? Just before she went into Miss Menyus, the telephone bell had rung. Mrs. Harmar had taken the receiver out of her hand. She had left her there. Could Clare? As she left unanswered the unfinished question, Mrs. Harmar appeared in the open doorway. So the woman has gone? My dear child, I thought she was going to stay forever. What did the creature want with you? Instead of answering her cousin's question, the girl began one of her own. Did you? She stopped, as if recognizing how useless such an inquiry would be. Mrs. Harmar stared at her. Did I what? Without attempting to reply, moving to an open window, Miss Graham leaned out as if seeking the relief of the fresh air. Mrs. Harmar knit her pretty brows in apparent perplexity. My dear Elsie, I told you before you went in to that woman that you looked as if you'd seen the ghost of Hamlet's father, and now that you've come out you look as if you'd seen two more. What did she want with you? She only wanted to talk to me. Only wanted to talk to you? I didn't suppose she wanted to hit you, though she might as well have done from the looks of you. I only wondered what she wanted to talk to you about that was so frightfully mysterious. She wanted to talk to me about one or two things. Did she? Indeed. How extremely lucid. Of course, if they were such private and particular things, I suppose they're no business of mine, though you didn't use to have any secrets from me. If the words were meant for a hint, Miss Graham did not take it. Leaning against a table, Mrs. Harmar stood observing her as if she were trying to make her out. Elsie, I'm older than you. Ten months? Ten such months! Besides, I'm a married woman, and a married woman is always much older than an unmarried girl. I doubt it. 
I'm a married woman, and I know. Anyhow, you and I have always been the very best of friends, and I hope we always shall be the very best of friends. But I've noticed that something seems to be growing up inside you which makes me anxious. During the last few days you've become a different girl, and what's worse, the change continues, so that I don't know where you'll get to. Please do stop. For goodness' sake, don't cultivate nerves. If we're not careful, you and me, we shall get into such a state of nervous strain that every breeze that blows, every passing shadow, every trivial thing that's done, or left undone, every chance word will be to us as so many pinpricks, so that, as it were, we shall be kept on the edge of a perpetual scream. Nothing could happen to us worse than that. Nothing, Elsie. What's done is done. We can't undo it. Can't you accept the inevitable? I've got to but not in that tone or with that air. That's not accepting it, that's playing the coward. Is it? I am sorry. If you really are sorry, it will be all right. Because then you'll pull yourself together, stiffen your back, get a smile in your eyes, pluck in your heart, and be the Elsie I have known. The Elsie who was my one bridesmaid, the best and dearest girl in all the world and the truest friend. By the way, who's Lionel Fitzherbert? Claire! Elsie, don't yell like that. Mrs. Harmar was holding both hands to her left breast, as if her cousin's raised tones had gone through her like a knife. I beg your pardon, but why did you ask me such a question? Gracious, child, if every time you're asked a question you're going to scream out like that, it will be impossible for anyone to live with you. From the way you called out, anybody might have thought I'd hurt you. Why are you glaring at me like that? I'm very sorry. I keep on being sorry, but I didn't know I was glaring. I was only wondering why you asked the question. Just before you went off to Miss Menyus, the telephone bell rang, didn't it? You gave me the receiver and I asked who was there. No one answered. I asked two or three times, but still no answer. I put down the receiver and went into the garden to see if a little out of doors would do my head good. The struggle to make talk with Miss Menyus had started its splitting. I don't know how long I'd been out when the telephone began ringing again. Back I came, and again I asked. Someone replied. I'll give you the exact words. They were such odd ones. Excuse me, miss. I don't know if the speaker took me for a servant or what. But would you mind asking Miss Elsie Graham not to forget that the name's Lionel Fitzherbert Esquire? There the speaker stopped. I waited for him to go on, but no, not another sound. I asked who Mr. Lionel Fitzherbert was, what he wanted, but not another syllable came through the phone. Apparently, in that one rather remarkable sentence, Mr. Lionel Fitzherbert had said his say right out. I don't know who Lionel Fitzherbert Esquire may be, but there's not much Esquire about his voice. If ever I heard a cockney of the lowest type speaking, I heard one then. Pray, who is Mr. Lionel Fitzherbert? While Mrs. Harmar had been speaking, her cousin had turned again to the window and now stood with her back towards her. I know no more than you do. Don't you? Is that a fact? I presume that's why you gave such a shriek when I mentioned the name. Very well, Elsie, as you please. I foresee that you're going to drag me into an atmosphere in which my nerves will be torn to fiddle-strings. Not that it matters in the least, at any rate to you. Moving to the copper vase, Mrs. Harmar began to smooth the splendid blooms of the plant delicately with the tip of her little finger. 
There's something else I want to ask you about, Elsie, now that we are on delicate subjects, and that's Uncle's will. If Miss Graham started at the mention of the word will, it seemed as if her cousin did not notice it. That's a matter on which we shall have to come to some arrangement, you and me, and as soon as we conveniently can, or it appears that if we don't things will get into a pretty muddle. Mrs. Harmar paused, as if for her cousin to speak. There was a quite perceptible period of silence during which it seemed that either Miss Graham had nothing to say, or that, if she had, she did not intend to say it. On the other hand, something in Mrs. Harmar's bearing conveyed the impression that she did not propose to go on until the other had spoken. As if conscious of her cousin's attitude, Miss Graham asked a question, still with her face turned to the garden and with her back to Mrs. Harmar. She asked it very softly and very clearly. One felt that she would not have asked it if compulsion had not been put upon her. Claire, have you seen an envelope? Again there was a perceptible pause before an answer ever came. Mrs. Harmar continued to stroke the petals of the flower. There was a look on her face as if she were trying to make out to what her cousin's question referred. An envelope? What envelope? Have you seen an envelope since you were in this room? It was perhaps because Mrs. Harmar detected something in Elsie's tone which seemed to be meant to be significant that the expression on her face became one of puzzlement. My dear child, what do you mean? I only wondered, that was all. Only wondered? I speak to you about Uncle's bothering will, and instead of seeming to pay the least attention to what I am saying, you fly off at a tangent to ask me if I have seen an envelope. Have you lost one, or what? It doesn't matter. Really, Elsie, you are very mysterious, or very inconsequent. You are certainly trying. Would you kindly favor me with your attention for a very few minutes? I am talking to you about Uncle's will. His will, you understand? I don't know if you're aware of it, but it seems that we're in a very awkward position, both of us. There's one will found, and another which may be found or mayn't. But it seems that until it's made clear if it is or isn't going to be found, and heaven knows how long that will take, there won't be anything for either of us. No money, no nothing, unless, that is, we come to some arrangement. Edwin's been trying on his own behalf to get some money out of the lawyers, but not a penny will they fork up until, as they put it, matters are settled. As perhaps you know, or if you don't actually know, you've probably guessed, since Edwin lost or spent or something all his own money, we've been practically living on what he borrowed from Uncle. And now, as there's no Uncle to borrow from, and the lawyers won't stump up, we're in a hole. But, as matters stand, everything that Uncle left is yours. Mrs. Harmar held out her hands with a pretty little gesture of distress. My dear child, what is the use of your talking like that after what I've just now told you? Mr. Lazarus, Messrs. Mearham and Kirby, Uncle's managing men, and other horrid people, not one of them will consent to our having a penny until, as they put it, a reasonable time has elapsed to enable Uncle's other will to be found. What a reasonable time is no one seems to know. And in the meanwhile, what are Edwin and I to do? We're practically penniless. I'm in the same condition. Are you? How delightful! What a moneyed household we seem to be! But we go one better than you, for not only are we penniless, but we owe everybody money. I owe quite ten pounds. Quite ten pounds, you lucky wretch! If we only owed ten hundred! Elsie, what do you think are the chances of your will? I call it your will because by it you get everything being found. 
Miss Graham had moved so that she and her cousin were nearly face to face. She regarded her intently for some seconds, Mrs. Harmar meeting her inspection with wide-open, innocent eyes, in which there was just a touch of wonder. Then she turned again to the window. There was a suggestion of restraint in the formal phrase in which she replied. It is hardly a question on which I am competent to form an opinion. Mrs. Harmar's speaking voice was one of her greatest charms. It was always so soft and musical. The almost phenomenal sweetness with which she spoke, then, was in odd contrast to the keen scrutiny to which she was subjecting so much of her cousin as could be seen from her back. It appears that the lawyers have a theory that the will which can't be found was stolen by someone that night, but who could have stolen it? There was no answer from the girl at the window who stood motionless. After a pause had made it clear that she meant to keep silent, Mrs. Harmar went on, always softly and sweetly. It's bad enough that they should have such a theory, isn't it, dear? But it seems that one result will be that if we don't come at once to some arrangement, the whole thing will be thrown into some dreadful law court, and that'll be much worse. So, Elsie, please, do agree with me. I don't know what you mean. I'm not aware that I have ever disagreed with you. Mrs. Harmar sighed, as if she found her cousin a little dull. We are quite ready to concede, Edwin and I that the probabilities are that your will is sure to come to light, and that in any event you are entitled to the lion's share. All we want is enough to pay our debts and to enable us to live, however humbly. My suggestion is that you should have two-thirds and we the remaining third. I won't have a penny. Elsie, don't be absurd. I have already told you that I won't touch a penny of Uncle's money, and I won't. I am prepared to sit down now and draw up a paper renouncing all claims I may have in your favor. But how are you going to live? I understand that Rupert Earle's wonderful invention is coming off. If it does, it will be the first invention I ever heard of that did, and that he's likely to be a multimillionaire. I do trust you're going to marry him. If you are, as you'll be wallowing in gold, I can begin to understand your quixotic generosity. But if you aren't, I must confess that you're beyond me altogether. I am not going to marry Mr. Earle. Then what are you going to do? I shall manage. Oh, will you? It's so easy for a girl with no prospects to marry on nothing a year. I'll make no comment on your attitude now, beyond remarking that even if I were to go to Mr. Lazarus and his friends with that paper in my hands, they'd hum and haw and haw and hum before they'd advance me even so much as a thousand pounds. They'd very properly look at me askance when they saw what a thumping profit I was going to make out of your nobility. We'll call it nobility, my love. No, Elsie, what I want is something practical. I want you to join me in drawing up a request for, say, ten thousand pounds. As it seems that one of us must have everything, if we make such a request in our joint names, they can hardly refuse to let us have so much of it. Indeed, Mr. Lazarus has as good as promised— and if he won't, Edwin knows someone who will. You see, Elsie, I may as well be frank, though frankness is apt to be a bit of a nuisance. Edwin has stupidly got himself into a silly mess, so that it's absolutely essential that we should get hold of a large sum of money in the next few days, and that's how it is with us. I'm quite ready to join you in such a paper if it's understood that I'm to have no part of the money, that all of it is for you. Such an understanding needn't be in the paper, need it? There was a cynical note in Mrs. Harmar's gentle tones which apparently gave Miss Graham food for reflection. 
or maybe the lady only saw in what might have been an imaginary stiffening in her cousin's pose the possibility of its having done so. Her tone changed. It became supplicatory, tremulous, pathetic. Elsie, you must take pity on us. You really must. You don't know what a bad mess we are in, Edwin and I, or you wouldn't hesitate. I'm not asking you for an answer at once. Take tonight to think it over. But tomorrow, if you could do what I ask, you would lift such a load of anxiety off my mind and render me a service for which I shall evermore be grateful. When Mrs. Harmar had finished, Miss Graham remained silent as if she were pondering over her cousin's words. Then, turning, she pressed the inquiry she had put before. "'Claire, are you quite sure that you have not found an envelope anywhere in this room since I went out to see Miss Minyas?' "'My dear child, what ridiculous idea have you got hold of? What wonderful envelope is it I am supposed to have found? I have paid attention to you. Now pay attention to me and please answer my question, just yes or no. What is your question? It's that way, is it? I see. Thank you. I am sorry. Again the girl returned to the window. Mrs. Harmar broke out with what for her was heat. Elsie, what do you mean? You talk in riddles, and because I don't begin to understand you, you take on airs. I don't know what envelope you're talking about, but I've seen no envelope of any sort or kind, not only in this room or in any room, or in any part of the house, neither since you went to see Miss Minyas nor during the whole of today. Will that do for you? Are you quite sure? Really? It is I who will have to be thankful. When I tell you that a thing is so, is it necessary that I should swear to it? The telephone bell began to ring. Mrs. Harmar moved to the table. As she took up the receiver, she gave utterance to a pious wish which might almost have been intended for a shot at Miss Graham. Now who's that? Do let's hope that it's not that aristocratic friend of yours whose anxiety has moved him to reiterate his entreaty that you won't forget that his name is Lionel Fitzherbert Esquire. You will certainly have to reassure him yourself if it is. End of chapters 13 and 14